seat. Good morning. Happy 2019. Uh, if you got your Bibles, please grab them and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 32. Uh, so in like the four and a half years, not quite five years, that we've been going as a church, um, it's just kind of always worked out that this time of year, uh, I usually do a series of messages just on the church or on like our doctrinal statement, or last year we did something called Dream Big, Work Small, just talking about mission and vision. And I just always think the first of the year is just a good time to just remind us what it is that we're doing, <laughs> right? I mean, it's possible, uh, it really is, to, to come to church, to this gathering for us here at the Amish Country Theater, whatever, wherever you go on a Sunday morning, and just come and get in that routine, and that's just what you do, and, and just lose sight of what it is that we're trying to accomplish, and, and really not what we're trying to accomplish, but more importantly, more accurately, what God wants to accomplish through us, through his people. Um, and so we're starting a series this morning called Who We Are, and it, what I'm going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks is our identity, listen, not just individually, okay? The Bible says a lot about our identity as individuals, that we are loved, that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we've been adopted, um, that we're his sons and his daughters, that we're salt and light. But primarily, I want to be talking about who we are corporately, okay? Um, is that there are three primary word pictures or metaphors used in the New Testament that speak about our corporate identity. And what that means is, is not just who you are or who I am, but who we are collectively. Um, and those, those pictures are that of bride, body, and family. So next week we'll be looking at what it means to be the family of God, the week after that, his body. But this morning, I want to start with what it means to be his bride, to be the bride of Christ. No one individual is just by themselves the bride, but corporately, together, the church is his bride. And I just want to remind us this morning and as we start this series and start this new year, that the common thread that unites us in our corporate identity is the passionate love that Jesus Christ has for us and that we are to have for him in return. That we are not just a people that confess right doctrine, we're not just a people who do certain things, although there are certain things that God calls us to do, but at the core of who we are, what holds us together is the love of God. That he sent his son to die for us and show us what true love is, and then our response to that love is to love him in return, to give him absolutely everything. You are not a Christian just because you come to church. You are not a Christian just because you mouth some certain words. You are a Christian if you love Jesus. And if you have been gripped by the fact that Almighty God, when you were still an enemy, sent his son to die for you. It is our love for Jesus Christ and for Almighty God, being in awe of the grace that he has shown us that makes us his people, that makes us his bride. He is the lover of our soul. And as we're going to see here in this text in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls this a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. 
and it's referring to Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, Paul is speaking to husbands and wives. He's kind of getting a little bit practical, yet he just can't stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> so he's weaving in some stuff here for husbands, but as you'll see, he's mainly talking about Christ and the church. Verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis chapter 2, which we'll look at later. Then he says this, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. To Christ and the church. There's three um, questions I want to ask of this text, just as we work our way through it and hopefully come to a deeper understanding and appreciation for what it means to be the bride of Christ. They are, first of all, how did we become his bride? Secondly, what is his will for us as his bride? And third, why is this good news? How did we become his bride? What is his will for us? And why is this good news? Number one, how did we become his bride? The answer, by his sacrifice and surrender by his sacrifice and surrender. In verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the Greek, that's one word, and it, it most commonly is translated as being arrested or being delivered over to or as surrendering. Christ, Almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has existed from all of eternity past, he came and he laid down all of his authority. He surrendered himself to the hands of his enemies, not because he was overpowered, but in order to overpower them and show the world his love, he gave up his life. We have become the bride of Christ through the sacrifice and the surrender of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, and even still in some cultures today, uh, when a wedding or a marriage is going to happen, there is what's called a dowry or sometimes a bride price. That in certain cultures, and certainly you see this um, in the Old Testament, that there was a price that the groom, that the husband-to-be had to pay for their bride. Probably the most famous uh, story involving the dowry or the bride price is that of Jacob. So if you remember your Old Testament history, you had Abraham was married to Sarah, Isaac to Rebekah, and then they had, or were his children, and then they had Jacob. Um, and Jacob once is in love with Rachel, and uh, Rachel's dad, Laban, tricks him. Um, and so his, the price that he wanted to pay to marry Rachel was seven years of labor for Laban. And so he does this seven years, uh, but then Laban pulls one over on him and um, gives him Leah instead at the wedding ceremony. And so a woman back in that day would have been, you know, kind of covered and veiled and wouldn't have seen much other than, than her eyes as he performed the ceremony. But Jacob is so in love with Rachel that he works another seven years um, to get her. And so he ends up 
paying double of what he should have had to pay for the woman that he, that he loved. Um, and he was tricked into it. He didn't choose it, but he was kind of tricked into it. But Christ did not just pay double. He paid infinitely more. And he was not tricked into it. He chose it. He chose to pay the price of his own life in order to purchase for himself a bride, us, the church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, Peter says, knowing, writing to the church, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. No, 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 no. That wouldn't have been enough to ransom us back from the hand of our enemy. But you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. At the way that we now have the opportunity and the privilege to be involved in the most intimate way with the most powerful being in all of the universe, that is possible because of Christ's sacrifice and surrender. Do you remember how Eve, the first woman, came to be? Again, this, this um, marriage, wedding, man and woman, this, this imagery is woven all throughout the scriptures, and it's there right from the very beginning. If we remember in Genesis chapter 2, um, how Eve came about, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord said, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them or name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he was asleep, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Jeff Vanderstelt uh, wrote a book called Gospel Fluency, and in it he just speaks how the gospel is woven into all of the story of the Bible, the story of redemption. And he draws this parallel between Adam and Eve and Christ and the church beautifully. He says this. He's speaking of Christ as the second Adam here, the better Adam. He says, for example, Adam is a type of Christ in that he was the first human ever given authority over the world on behalf of God. And from his sleeping body, there came into existence a bride, Eve, who was called to rule with him. In the same way, Christ was given authority from the Father to rule the world on behalf of God, and from his sleeping body, i.e. his death, when he died, fell asleep, there came into existence a bride, us, the church, who is called to rule with him. Guys, do you understand the high calling of who not just you are, but who we are? Not just Mercy Hill, but everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord, wherever people gather together, committed to one another in worship, community, and mission, built around Jesus Christ. We are the bride, and we were purchased with his death. The second question 
what is his will for us? What is his will for us? The answer, our sanctification and splendor. Our sanctification and our splendor. Look at verse 26 here. Can I get these verses up on the screen? I believe you've got these. I want you guys to say out loud with me as I read this every word that is underlined. Okay? So, ready? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What is his will for us? It's beauty. And beauty to God is holiness. Or as it's referred to, well, it says holy, but sanctification, our splendor. Jesus wants his bride to be beautiful. This is his call, again, not just upon you, but upon us collectively to be set apart, to be made holy, that we belong to him and him alone. Does your life and do our lives collectively together give testimony to the fact that we have one that we are waiting for? And we are not going to give ourselves to another. We're not going to love this world or the things in the world, as the Bible says. To do that is to be an enemy of God. But we have a husband, and there is a marriage, there is a wedding day that is coming. And we look for it, we long for it with eager expectation and hope, knowing that he is coming back to redeem us, that we can finally, fully, totally, perfectly, forever be with him. We're called to be set apart in the midst of a world that is dark and dead. We are to be sanctified, called to be set apart as light and life in the world, and therefore glorify his grace, the riches of his grace that he could take a people that were his enemies and make us his bride. See, our splendor isn't about us. It's about him. Our beauty isn't so that all eyes will be on us. Our beauty is so that ultimately, through us, through the world seeing us, all eyes will turn to him because they will think, how in the world did this wretched, dirty people become so beautiful? Only, only by the grace of God. Um, you know, the, the wedding dress is obviously one of the biggest parts um, or most important parts of the wedding. Women, can I get an amen? Come on, somebody. All right. Um, and, you know, there's even the show, Say Yes to the Dress, right? I never watched it, just being honest, but I know that it exists. Um, don't judge me. I didn't watch the show. Uh, but, you know, it's a big part. And, and the dress, you know, the white, obviously, it's a picture of the purity of the bride being committed. And even though um, the woman, when she gets the dress, is probably, well, not probably, but they are, you know, they're excited about it showing all her friends, you know, describing it, talking about it, leading up to the wedding. Just can't wait to put it on, okay? Even though all those things are true, here's what you never see. You never see that woman, even though she's ecstatic to have the dress. You don't see her in all of her excitement to put it on, just 
throw it on and like, hey, you know, I know it's for the wedding, but you know, girls, let's go out and eat some wings. B-dubs on me tonight, you know, in the white wedding dress, or eating spaghetti or pasta or just wearing it out to the grocery store. Here's the point, is that in the same way, church, listen, we live in a sinful world and we still have sin residing inside of us and so God has saved us. He is saving us day by day and someday he will finally, totally, perfectly, completely save us. Sin will be completely eradicated. But even though we live in this sinful world, church, I just want to remind us that we are not to play fast and loose with our purity. That we are to be set apart for our husband. Listen, listen. Not just in not doing bad things, okay? The Bible is against sin. Your husband is against sin, individually and corporately. But not just being against doing the wrong thing, but our purity, part of our purity, is the good things that we do do, the way that we lay down our lives, the way that we sacrifice for others the same way he has sacrificed for us. Again, magnifying the riches of his grace and pointing people back to him. Guys, this is his will for us in 2019. His will for us is to be set apart. And, and if, you, if you'll notice here in the text, this is really important and very practical. He, he goes into detail, how are we, how are we cleansed? Yes, he gave himself up for, her, for us, but look how Paul describes this, that he might sanctify her. Sanctity just means being set apart, kind of synonymous with being made holy. And it says, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That his word, his promises to us, if we have come to be in Christ, if we have been born again, it is through on some level that you have put your faith and trust in his promises. It is by grace that you're saved through faith in his word. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not by works because no, so nobody can boast about it or brag about it. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so it's through this word that we've been washed, we've been cleansed. But listen, we're, we're conti- this is continually a process and it is through getting in this book and letting it wash over our souls that we continue to be washed and cleansed and set apart. Guys, this book, the Bible, every word is inspired and it is a means of grace <coughs> to help you in your sanctification. I have a simple little exercise, a little challenge for you. Not an exercise, challenge is a better word. <clears throat> no matter where you're at, no matter what you do, in your regular Bible study. Some people, you, you might read through the Bible in a year. You might be studying it, breaking it down. Some, some, some of you might just, just struggle to get in it at all. You maybe read it once a week. No matter where you're at, here's my challenge to you, okay, in 2019. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament, okay? If you read five days a week for 52 weeks, I think that Um, is like 261 days or something like that. If you just read one chapter, five days a week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read one chapter a day, five days a week. Read it out loud to yourself. And here would be my challenge for you. You see whether or not it has a cleansing effect on your life. I promise you that it will. Read this book, one chapter a day, for at least five days a week in 2019, out loud to yourself. Why out loud? So here's what happens. 
is the cleansing effect. Again, we are body, soul, spirit. You can't really disconnect these things. It's, it's, it's all us, okay? Makes up who we are. Um, when you're just reading it, pretty much the only sense, physical sense that's involved is just your eyes. I mean, your mind, it's not really a sense, but you're, you're thinking through it. But when you begin to speak the word of God out loud, you not only are engaging your mouth, your tongue, but you're also engaging your ears. And it sounds simple. Listen, it's, it's not magic. It's just what the Bible says. That the, this is one of the means of grace that the Spirit of God uses, that you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But I promise you that if you will just read a chapter a day out loud to yourself, it is going to have a cleansing effect on your life. Will you do that? Is that too hard? No? Yeah? Okay, I have two hands. Thank you. I appreciate that. Read it out loud. We are washed with the water of the word. Lastly, why is this good news? The fact that he has made us his bride by his sacrifice and surrender and that his will for us is our sanctification and splendor. Why is this good news? Here's why. Because it brings us into the joy of his security and his safety. His security and his safety. So Paul goes on here, follow the logic. He's washed us, he's cleansed us, the washing of the water of the word. Then he goes back, verse 28. He's rolling back into speaking to earthly husbands and wives in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. Now listen, here's the principle though. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh or hated himself. But what does he do? He nourishes it and cherishes it. And then where's the example of that? Just as Christ does the church. Here's, here's Paul's point. Paul, what he's doing here is he's putting before you, he's arguing with logic. And he's saying, guys, it would be illogical of God not to continue to be for you. God is for your splendor. He is for your sanctification. And that is good news for us. You know why? Because even in our stumbling, even when we do take the wedding dress and go eat wings, and get it dirty. He is committed to nourishing us and to cherishing us and to again washing us and making us holy over and over and over again. And in that, because he is committed to himself and to his own glory, I'm telling you that is good news. That is not selfishness. There's great security in that. Nobody ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. And we have been made one flesh with Christ. He is committed to nourishing and cherishing us for eternity. Those words there, nourishing and cherishing, in the original language, they're very intimate terms. And they almost always have to do with the idea of feeding, okay, or of, or of you know, kind of hand feeding something too. So it's not the idea of a farmer going out with a bucket of slop and throwing it to the pigs, and say, eat up, boys. Um, it's the idea of a shepherd with a little baby lamb bottle feeding it. That's how God, Jesus, intimately wants to nourish and to cherish us, to build us up. He's for his glory and he's for us. And in that, there's extreme safety. And one of the... Uh, um, most, I guess you'd call it, 
graphic, also moving, um, heart-wrenching books in the entire Bible is that of the book of Hosea. And if you guys know the story, Hosea is a prophet who has the book of the Bible named after him. And God gives him an extremely difficult task. And the task is to go and to marry a prostitute, a harlot. Um, And so Hosea, in obedience, goes and he does this. Even to the place of, um, even after he marries her, even after he has a few kids with her, she cannot stop her immoral lifestyle to the place where she literally finds herself sold again into slavery, truly like old times sex slave trade, to the place where she is actually on an auction block in Hosea chapter 3. And she is Hosea's wife, but because of her sin, her immorality, she finds herself literally being sold as a slave. And God says to Hosea, go and buy her back again. Now, why would God have him do this? Here's why. He makes it very clear. God called Hosea to do this because he needed a picture of his faithfulness to a faithless people. And if you understand the story and if you can even try to imagine what that would have been like for Hosea to go back and literally have to buy back his wayward wife, it should do something deep in our core of who we are that causes us to hate our sin. Because yes, it's amazing what Hosea did for Gomer, but guys, I'm telling you, it is infinitely more amazing what Christ has done for us. That he buys us back again and again and again. Listen, he's not okay with it. Hosea pleads with Gomer. He says, be mine. I will be your husband. I will love you. Love me as I love you. Let me care for you. Let me cherish you. Let me nourish you. In the same way, Christ in his, in his washing us and cleansing us and buying us back and being faithful to us in the midst of our faithlessness. Guys, he's not okay with us just going astray. He's not okay with it. He, he calls us back. Over and over, the question is, will we respond? Even though, you know, we, we are Gomer. Mark, Mark Dever, um, in his commentary on the book of Hosea, and I'm sorry, guys, I got one contact in this morning. That's why I'm bending down so far to read this. But let, let me read his comment here on the book of Hosea. He says, I wonder whom you have identified with while we looked through this little book. Hosea, perhaps? Have you sympathized with him? After all, God called him to love an adulterous wife by taking her back. And we all know how hard it can be to love sinners. And he goes on. He says, but you realize who you are, don't you? I'm here to tell you that you are Gomer. Regardless of all the ways 
you may compare your righteousness with someone else's. When you compare yourself with God and what he has called you to be, it should be clear that you are Gomer. You and I are the unfaithful objects of God's ever faithful love. Only when we understand this do we begin to understand what love is. Consider how strongly God in his holiness desires justice and so desires to punish our sin. Then consider how great his love must have been in order to devise and execute his plan of redemption through the cross. This is love. God is faithful to his guys. I think the the verse, the little phrase that has just been resounding in my own heart and mind as I've been studying this this week. It's verse 32, and I mentioned this at, at the beginning. Again, in verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, Therefore the man shall leave his father and mother. God, Jesus, left heaven, came to earth to hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I just love this. Paul says, This mystery is profound. (laughs) As you know, up here on Sunday morning, I've tried this morning to explain it as best I can. But honestly, at the end of the day, I, I just have to testify with Paul that this mystery is profound. That a holy, righteous, eternal God can love us the way he does call us in to this type of intimate relationship the way he does. It's profound, and guys, it is good news. It is good news. And he calls us to rest in that this morning, but to also pursue it. Worship team, you can come up. We'll begin to close. Um, Again, God's will for us, one thing I can say unequivocally, inequivocably, is that the word? I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to say that word. Anyway, but is that in 2019, you know, how many of you have like the beginning of the year, like, man, I wonder what this year holds. I wonder what's coming. Um, I don't know specifically, but from God's word, we can know generally. And one thing I can say with certainty on the authority of God's word, as we've looked at this morning, is that he wants us to pursue purity. Again, not just not doing something bad, but doing righteousness, serving others, laying down our lives for others. And he is working with all of his might to bring about this will for us, to make us his bride, to make us beautiful. But guys, he calls us to engage and to pursue that same will that he has for us, to pursue it with him. In Revelation chapter 19, again, how the story all ends, it ends with an unbelievable wedding ceremony between Christ and his church. It started in the beginning, in Genesis 2, with a wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve, and the story of the Bible ends with a wedding ceremony between Christ and his church. The whole reason he thought of marriage in the first place, to be a picture of that. In Revelation chapter 19, can I get that up on the screen, guys? It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, 
and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And listen, his bride has made herself ready. That's our responsibility. That's our call. That's what he desires for us. In this year and however many years he gives us on this earth. To make ourselves ready for him. But it's not all us either. Verse 8, it was granted, it was given her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That is his will for us, Mercy Hill Church. My question to you this morning is as we close, is will you pursue purity in this, for yourself and for us collectively in the same way that Christ has pursued it and purchased it for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us your bride. Thank you for giving us graphic, heart-wrenching imagery like Hosea and Gomer that causes us to feel the love that you have for us and the depth of the price that you paid to make us yours. Lord, I ask this morning very humbly, knowing that we need your help, Lord, please help us to pursue this purity, Lord, with the same passion that you pursued it for us. Be glorified among us, Lord Jesus, in 2019 that all people would look at us and see that we have somebody that we're waiting for, that we have a lover of our souls, and nothing is more important than him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me. So as we take communion today, as we do every week, guys, you know, I, I believe that too often there's too much guilt and shame associated with communion as people, as many times preachers or pastors call you to search your hearts. And, and I believe that we can take it in joy and in celebration. But today, today as we start this new year, guys, listen, as you come and take this, I do want you to search your heart. I want each and every one of us to search our hearts. And guys, where there is darkness, where there is habitual, persistent sin, here's what you do. You search your heart. You ask the Spirit to search your heart. When He reveals something to you, you just agree with Him that it's there, and then you come and you take this. Because there's no other answer other than the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. We all have sin in our lives, and we do need to search our hearts, but we cannot deal with it in any other way than by running to the cross. And guys, I want us as a people this morning to take a moment and to do that as we sing and then come in humility and brokenness but with great hope and with great joy because of the goodness of our Savior. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it 
in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's continue to worship.